Well, as we continue in our worship this morning, we're going to have Chris Jones come and read Psalm 59. We're walking through the Psalms this summer, and we started last week on Psalm 58, walking through them consecutively. And for the next four weeks, uh, each of our elders are, are going to be teaching from one of the Psalms. And I just want to encourage you. I know uh, many times when you come, uh, you get to hear me teach, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that we are being trained in hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, not the voice of Justin. And, and really what I want to encourage you in this morning is that as our elders come and teach over the next few weeks is that you would be open-handed and asking the Holy Spirit to speak through a Chris Longley, a Josh Hopp, a Wes Shellnut, and, and that you would, you would really hear these, these passages are, are very transformative. And I believe that there is there, the possibility for amazing fruit if we will listen, if we'll open our hearts, if we'll open our minds and ask the Holy Spirit to speak through these men. So I'm going to ask Chris to come read through Psalm 59 for us this morning and pray for us. Thank you. Good morning. Thea. This is Psalm 59, a psalm of David from the English Standard Version. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, 
I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let us pray. Father God, we are the result of your love. We are here because of your love for us. Your word is the same now as it was in the day of David, true and honest and trustworthy. And you are the same God who always was and always will be faithful and true to his word. We do come to worship you and praise you, to love and adore you, to glorify your name, to remind you that we do believe that you are our rock and our salvation. And for this, we give you all the praise and honor and glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Good morning, guys. How are you? We're good? <clears throat> Might be a little bit different this morning. Um, so I'm going to try to look at you as much as I can, but honestly, I don't want to miss what God's been showing me. So if I look at my notes a lot, bear with me. Just take it in. Um, what I would like for you to do, because I used to do this with groups that I would share the word with, can you do like this for a minute? And rub these things together. <laughs> Because this is what I like to do, man, when we're excited about the Word. So we're going to dive in together, all right? But I want you to be excited because God's speaking, all right? I might be saying some things, but, like, God's speaking, okay? So God's speaking through His Word this morning. Um, thank you, Chris, for reading that. If you see me using something out up here to dab some sweat off, you can bear with me. So there's four things that I want you guys to think through what David was walking through. And then at the end of this, we'll hit some application. But up front, I wanna tell you four truths that we're gonna hit from Psalm 59. And those are, God's calling on David did not exempt him from suffering. God's calling on David did not exempt him from suffering. Number two, God's judgment may not be immediate, but it is imminent, it's coming. His judgment might not be immediate. It may not happen right away, but it is eventually coming. Number three, God's judgment is for his name and for his renown. Imagine that. <laughs> God would do something for himself. So God's judgment, as much as we want judgment and justice to come down and it to happen immediately and to get us out of a jam, God's judgment is for his name, is for his renown, it's for the fame of God. And lastly, which is amazing, out of suffering rise songs of praise. Do you know that? A lot of stuff that we even get to sing in here on a Sunday morning is songs that may have very well risen from times of suffering. So songs rise out of suffering. 
This psalm, this particular psalm, was said to have been written, or at least this prayer turned into a song, when Saul sent men to watch David's house to kill him. That's when the psalm took place. So I want to give you some background leading up to this psalm. So I'm going to read through a lot of stuff, so you hang on tight, all right? In rejection to God being king over his people, Israel, alongside their desire of wanting to have a king to judge them like the rest of the nations, Saul became the first king of Israel. Because Saul did not keep the commandments of the Lord and he feared God over people, uh, God rejected him as being king and he was told that his kingdom would not continue. And then the prophet Samuel told uh, Saul, he said, hey, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And this chosen prince was David. And David, up to this point that we know of, everything that had happened prior to Psalm 59 or everything that took place before he was able to write this, he was anointed as the next king of Israel, chosen by God, but not king yet. So he knew he was appointed, anointed by God, he was chosen, but he wasn't king yet. David had the spirit of the Lord rush upon him from that day forward when he was anointed, while at the same time, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So as I'm reading these, I hope you can kind of tie some things together, man. David has some enemies, and the beginning of the psalm was like, hey, these enemies who were surrounding David's house, uh, this is when Saul sent men to watch David's house so they could kill him. All right, so that's what's taking place. Uh, another thing we know about David up to this point he played the harp for Saul to make him well when Saul was tormented by a harmful spirit that would come and go. So Saul was in David's house playing music for him to make him feel well when he was tormented. The Bible actually says that David was greatly loved by Saul. David became Saul's armor bearer. David found favor in Saul's sight. David stood his ground. You guys, all you guys know this story, but David stood his ground, standing for the armies of the living God against the giant of the Philistines, killing him with a sling and a stone. Remember that? Everybody knows that story? Goliath? David was set over the men of war by Saul and was successful. Man, all that sounds awesome, right? That's a good thing. It sounds like it was going pretty smooth for David, and I think his relationship with Saul was actually okay at one point but then there was a shift from 1 Samuel chapter 18 and I apologize I only gave these guys a few slides to work with so uh, yeah here we go um, from 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 6 through 9 as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Man, you got to imagine Saul at this point in the battle. He's coming home from the battle. The giant has just been killed. The ladies are actually coming out to meet him in the streets, and they've got tambourines. They're singing for joy, and Saul's like, man, yeah, that was awesome, right? That was good, and like, he's getting hyped up too. Um, and then the women started singing something. They said, Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul was like, yeah, that's right, man. Praise me. Like, it, it's true. Isn't that awesome? And then they continued and said, and David, his ten thousands. 
And they just went, <laughs> for Saul at that point, okay? And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. He was not a happy camper with David. David was a sore to him from this point on. And by the way, this is not likely the first time that Saul either wanted full credit for something or even recognition. He actually did that in his own son's life. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 3 through 4, says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. So like Saul was already used to getting credit as being king, taking credit for what his son had done. He's like, yeah, get what Saul did. And so now you can imagine how he feels when the ladies are singing out, Saul has killed thousands, but David, ten thousands. <clears throat> what else do we know about David prior to Psalm 59? Well, we know uh, right after this circumstance with the ladies singing and celebrating, making much of David, the very next day, Saul hurls a spear at David while David's trying to soothe Saul with music again. Do you imagine that, be being in the room with uh, Saul, and he throws a spear at you because he wants to pin you to the wall? He's a nice guy, man. I want to I be his friend. Um, Saul was afraid of David. Oh, by the way, it, it says, I don't know how this happened, but in that verse where it says he threw a spear, it says that David evaded him twice. You're like, wait a minute, what happened? David, did you give him a chance to throw that at you again? You're like, oh, you missed. <laughs> you want to try that again? I, I don't know how he evaded him twice, but he did. Um, so Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. David has great success, and Saul stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and he came in before them when it was wartime. Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines by requesting a bride price to marry his daughter. He was like, yeah, you want to marry my daughter? And by the way, I've got a way to take care of David. Uh, go and get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines and come back and you can marry my daughter. He thought he was going to take him out. You know what David did? He actually brought back 200. Saul's like, dang, I can't get rid of this guy, right? So uh, Saul and David, man, just not, not good. Um, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. And by the way, this part right here is leading up to his house being surrounded and watched. But Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. That was, that was his heart's intent. And then right before this incident involving David's house being watched, Saul tried to pin David to the wall again, but David slipped away and escaped. So the guy was going through some trying times for a while, right? But he's supposed to be king. David's supposed to be king. He was anointed. He knew he was going to be king. But right now, Saul was king. 
And so with that in mind is where we come into the psalm. Where David says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And this was a real tangible, intentional, personal threat against David. They're surrounding his house. And by the way, in case I forget to say this, David actually did escape from this incident. Um, he was let down out of a window. Uh, his wife helped him out, who happened to be Saul's daughter. <clears throat> David has enemies, and David has God. Or better yet, God has David. It's both together at the same time. David said, my enemies, and he said, oh my God. David has God for him, yet he has others that are against him. Hopefully this is already starting to stir with some of you guys, because you're like, man, wait a minute, if, if God is God, right? If God is God, then I see things happen in a, a particular way. David has God working for his good and others working for evil. David has God who gave him life, who gives him life, and others who want to take it away. I'm going to reference Charles Spurgeon quite a bit, so just be forewarned. Uh, here's something that he said regarding David knowing and admitting that he has enemies while at the same time calling on God. He said, this is the right method of effectually catching and quenching the fiery darts of the enemy upon the shield of faith. God is our God, and therefore deliverance and defense are ours. Seems to be that Saul was the one who had beef with David, right? <laughs> He's the guy that threw the spear. He's the guy that uh, was not being praised like David was. It was Saul's beef. Um, and yet, he has enemies or messengers of Saul who follow right in suit. And they wanted to kill David just as much as Saul did. Not only was David being pursued, and this I found to be a trip. Right? Not only was David being pursued, uh, his death sentence was given by Saul himself. There was free reign given by the authority to execute David. So look, at one point, if David's house was surrounded, it's like, it's all good, man. We still have some people that can come and get these guys. But this was the king who said, surround his house. So there is no more authority to come and help him out, right? It's the king and his people versus you. What do you do? The bar seemed to have been set for David already. I wonder if he somehow thought, God, you killed the giant Philistine. I'm expecting you to deliver me the same way every time afterwards. How does it, he goes from chopping off the head of a giant as a little shepherd boy, and yet now he's surrounded, right? You're like, God, aren't you going to deliver me the same way every time? His reaction could have been, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be king, so let me just set this into motion myself. You guys remember there was a, another couple who decided to do that at the beginning in Genesis. There was Abraham and Sarah. God gives this promise to Abraham. He's like, hey, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 
I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham's like, that's awesome. We don't have any kids. God's like, I'm, I'm telling you, Abraham, through your descendant, this is going to happen. That's fine, but Sarah, we don't have any kids, do we? We don't have any kids. So uh, they tried to force the issue, and they had uh, Sarah's Egyptian maid servant lie with Abraham to have a son because they tried to rush God's plan and to carry it out for him. So I wonder what David could have done in this situation to say, I don't, I don't get it. I'm supposed to be king. Let me make this happen. So David knew he had a calling, but he was definitely not exempt from suffering. Not at all. Verses 3, 4, first part, says, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. David right here is declaring his innocence. I didn't do anything. King Saul's son, Jonathan, he spoke of David's innocence to Saul, pleading for David. This is out of 1 Samuel 19. Uh, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, Saul, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And in this instance, Saul actually listened to him. He said he listened to the voice of Jonathan, his son. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Lie. Right? David himself, after this incident of having his house watched, he shouted to Saul from a cave that he was hiding in from Saul, in which he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. He said, see my father. He was yelling at him across where Saul couldn't get to him, right? See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I didn't kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. At the same time, even though David was declaring his innocence, there are many instances in which David recognized and confessed his own sins. And I want you to hear him saying, like, I'm, I'm a sinless guy, not by any means. Psalm 51, David says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 119, who I credit to David anyway, um, said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So he is in no wise sinless. However, he is certain that in this situation, he has done nothing to warrant this reaction and treatment. And he's telling it to God. He's declaring it to God.
And then David says, awake, verse 4 again, awake, come to meet me and see. Awake, was God sleeping? Wake up, God, are you seeing what's happening to me? You guys remember that story with Jesus in the boat with his disciples, they're going across and there's a big storm and Jesus is down in the boat sleeping and the disciples are like, we're going to die, right? And Jesus is down there sleeping. Like, uh, they wake him up. They're like, Lord, you don't even care that we're perishing. Jesus gets up, and he just tells the, the storm to stop, and it does, and there's peace and calm. And he's like, guys, you of little faith, why didn't you believe? And here David's like, awake, God, don't you see what's happening? Come and see, come and see. You got to do something. Come and give me right judgment. Psalm 35 says, awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my judgment, for my cause. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Verse 5, you, Lord, God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. I always say Selah, but I don't think that's the correct pronunciation of the word. Uh, Selah. But what a great place to pause, which is what it's intended to do in this song. What a great place to pause and to think, a move from my God, that's where David's at, right? A move from being my God to the Lord God of hosts, the God of the angels, the God of the armies of the heaven, the God who made the sun, the moon, the stars, the God of hosts. From my God to the God of Israel, from my enemies to all the nations who plot evil. So David's just not concerned about himself, though when he approached this, like, it's game on at his house. I'm being surrounded. This is me. Like, they want my life. The king, his messengers, this is me. And he's crying out, oh, my God. And then he remembers who God is, and he declares that, oh, Lord, God of hosts, that's who you are. You made it all. You're the God of all creation. And I'm not the only one who has enemies. Guess what? It happens all throughout the earth, God. So will you rouse and punish all the nations who plot treacherously like is being done against me? Verses 6 through 8, uh, a lot of similarity between, well, there is, uh, I think 6 and 14 are the exact same verse. Um, which has got to mean a lot, right? That comes in a song twice and you're singing. Here's that stanza again. Hold some high importance. And he's like, each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O oh Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. These guys were persistent, relentless, right? They're returning, 
<laughs> they want something, and that's me. That's my life, right? <clears throat> and they're being noisy to be heard because they want the attack to also be verbal, verbal abuse, verbal c- cutting, taunting. They're going about the city searching as well. There's no accountability or rival against these guys, so they think. Spurgeon says this, they are free from all restraint. They fear no God in heaven, and the government on earth is with them. When men have none to call them to account, there is no accounting for what they will do. He who neither fears God nor regards man sets out on errands of oppression with gusto and uses language concerning it of the most atrociously cruel sort. Psalm 10, you hear other guys in wickedness saying why, or David saying this, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why does that happen? But you do see, you note their mischief that you may take it into your own hands. And here's the thing for David, and he had to say this. There's a lot of times we see David saying some things, and it's almost like as David is praying or he's singing, it's like a reminder to himself. It's like, oh, yeah, I feel this way, but this is who God is. I feel this way, this is my circumstances, but this is who God is. I have to say it out loud sometimes so I can be reminded personally. God hears, God sees, he knows, and he laughs. It's kind of crazy. I couldn't imagine David laughing at this point, right? His house is surrounded, and he's inside laughing. He's like, but God is. Why? He laughs because he knows their end. Psalm 37, 12 and 13 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. He's laughing like he knows what's coming. He laughs because of their position compared to his. Psalm 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. These guys don't see it all. They're they're making some ruckus. God sits in the heavens in his position. He laughs. He laughs because of the surety of his judgment in light of his eternal perspective. Psalm 37, 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. In just a little while, God sees things from his perspective. When David could only see so much, he has to declare God's perspective over his own. says that uh, God holds the nations, all the nations. Again, it's a move to not just his personal circumstance, but God holds all the nations in, derisions, in derision. It's a term that means ridicule, mocking, scoffing. Vines puts it this way. God views them as despised enemies who can accomplish nothing. God views them as enemies who can accomplish nothing. Or the Septuagint translation is treating them as of no account. So God treats them as of no account. 
It's a big deal to David. It's even hard to say that, right? Like God laughs at them. That's all good. But how does David feel in the moment, right? Well, God, who sits in heaven, he's treating them as of no account. Not that he's looking away, but what can they do to God? Verse 9 and 10. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, oh God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Some manuscripts, uh, when translating this verse, they differ from, oh, my strength, to simply the strength of my enemies. The New American Standard says, because of his strength, the strength of the enemy, I will watch for you. Talking to God. For God is my stronghold. The enemy's strength, which sent David to God for his salvation and deliverance, or the Lord's strength, which David looks to. Remember the boldness of David against the Philistine giant? There was no one else who was willing to go out and face Goliath. They had a whole army like, on both sides, the Philistines and the Israelites, and this giant was coming and yelling out against God and his people. And no one was willing to fight him. And yet here comes the little shepherd boy to bring some food to his brothers. And he's like, what'd that giant just say? Remember that boldness? David looks to God's strength. And he also looks to God as being his fortress, his defense, his high tower, a secure place out of the reach of the enemy. It's interesting in this way, uh, it's sort of almost as if David's saying, they're watching me, I'm watching you, and you're watching the both of us. It's a good place to be. They're watching me, I'm watching you, you're watching the both of us. This psalm is a prayer that includes the recognition of trouble, a plea for help, a declaration of God's provision, and a song of praise. Prayer itself is David's way of seeing God as his fortress and his help. I mean, that's huge. Prayer is a way that David sees God as a fortress. Could you imagine him saying that, oh God, my fortress, because this fortress is a place that's out of reach of, of his enemies. Like, did God pick him up and out of that place physically, and God become that high place that he couldn't be reached? It was in the act itself of recognizing God as a fortress, but he did it through prayer. And he's not the only one. Uh, King Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah, this was post-David, he made his plea in much the same way when being threatened by Sennacherib. I always messed this up. I say Sennacherib, but I think it's something else. Uh, He was the king of Assyria. It's out of 2 Kings 19. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirakah, king of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand 
of king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria had done to all the lands, devoting them to, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered, Hezekiah, people of Israel? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeth, and the people of Eden who were in Telesar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, and the king of Eva? And I love this response, because this is huge. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. Here's this threat right in front of him. You know what he did? Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread out the, Lord, the, the letter in front of the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed. That was his response. How do you make the Lord your fortress? The Lord is your fortress. How do you recognize it? Well, for these guys, it was to pray, right? For Hezekiah, it was like, man, I got this. This is what it is, Lord. And he spreads out the letter before him. And this is, this is what he prays. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms, kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. This also very much sounds like the psalm we just read. Save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And I love that, and that gives us hope, what he just said. Like, David's got a calling, and yet he still suffers. It's almost like that's, that's a given, right? God's judgment is not immediate, but it is coming. It's imminent. And then God's judgment is for his renown, for his name. As you even hear Hezekiah saying this, like, save us, God, so all the earth will know that you are God alone. Why deliver us? Like, that's it. Verse 11 and 13. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of the, their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Let my people see. Show them how you shake your enemies. Show them how you protect us. Because these guys are obviously walking in some pride, right? They're like, well, who's going to hear us? We don't have any accountability. There is no rival. Who's going to hear us? This was a spoken curse here, vowing David's destruction, not only speaking against him, but lying about him. Someone said that he 
who is not ashamed to curse before God will be sure to lie unto men. Every swearer is a liar. And David says, bring them to an end. I kind of wrestle with what, like, what David's doing here. It's like, is he going back and forth in his song and in his prayer? Because up front, he was like, man, God, don't spare anybody who plots evil. Just wipe them out. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, kill them not, lest my people forget. So actually, you know what? Hold on. <laughs> Let's use this for your glory. And then again, he's like, you know what? Consume them in your wrath. <laughs> Bring them to an end. Destroy them. If they are no more, is it them that will know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth? If they are brought to an end in the sense that their pursuit will be stopped and their plans will be foiled and their pride will be trampled, is it both them and God's people and the ends of the earth who will know that God is God? I think that's more the sense like consume them where they're at and stop what they're doing so that I'll know, so that we'll know, and the rest of the earth will know that you're God. Um, you guys remember there's a portion at the beginning of Psalm 59, like there's a heading at a lot of the Psalms, and this one says, uh, David's like, make this song, this psalm, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Um, I'm not gonna pretend like I know what that is exactly, but I'm gonna tell you what I think, which could very well be wrong, because there's a lot of commentators who were like, I, who knows? Um, you'll find that in uh, Psalm 57, 58, 59, and 75, it's like, make this psalm, this song, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. I don't know what that is. Uh, country, rock, you know, so. But David's stance, here's what I see. David's stance on not putting a hand against the Lord's anointed, but allowing God to deal out the retribution. That was David's stance. Not putting his hand against the Lord's anointed, but letting God deal out the retribution. Psalm 57.3 says, It is God who will put to shame him who tramples on me. Psalm 58 is the Lord who enacts vengeance and judges the earth. It's the Lord who does it. Psalm 75, this was by Asaph, by the way. It is God who executes judgment. He will cut off all the horns of the wicked. David ends up sparing Saul's life twice. And I already mentioned one to you. In a cave, he cut off the corner of his robe. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then there was actually another time. David went into Saul's encampment, yet says, do not destroy him. For he, or for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and he'll perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Verse 16 and 17. I just thought you wanted to hear that tidbit about do not destroy, by the way. You can take of it as you will. Uh, verses 16 and 17. David wraps up the psalm this way. 
And these guys are howling, they're prowling, they're persistent, they want to take me. They're consumed, by the way, if they don't get it, they don't have their fill, they're not going to be satisfied. They're consumed with being my attacker. They're bloodthirsty and they want me. Like, that's their goal, right? And then David says, but I will sing of your strength. That's his turning to you, right? But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The wrestle between concern over conflict and remembering God's love and salvation. You'll find this interesting, too, because David, I don't want you to think like David automatically does this every time. This psalm's good in a way because he's surrounded by enemies, and you're like, oh, okay, well, he thought of God, he declared who he was, and like, there's a song of praise. That didn't always happen, all right? Um, the same guy who said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, also said, why, O oh Lord, do you stand so far away why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You're like, wait a minute, I thought you just said he was very present, help in trouble. And then he says, why do you hide yourself in trouble? So there is this wrestle, and David has to be reminded of the truth of who God is, not necessarily the circumstance happening or how he feels. David also battled with weariness and grief. Psalm 6 says, I am weary with my moaning, Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. They keep howling. I'll keep praising. John Calvin said, Unto thee, O my strength, I will sing. Formerly, David had said that the strength of his enemy was with God, meaning that God's sovereign even over the, over the strength that an enemy has. Like God gives breath to every single person, every single heartbeat. Calvin continues, the expression, however, which admits of two meanings, he elegantly applies to himself in a different sense. God has the strength of the wicked in his hands to curb and to restrain it and to show power or and to show that any power of which they boast is vain and fallacious. His own people, on the other hand, he supports and secures against the possibility of falling by supplies of strength from himself. William Nicholson says this, he's a Puritan preacher and teacher, mid 19th century. He says of strength and mercy, he joins these two attributes, or strength and steadfast love, another word for mercy. He joins these two attributes, strength and mercy, very well. For take away strength from him, and he cannot. Remove mercy, and he will not protect. Both must go together in any one that will defend. Power that he can, mercy that he will. Otherwise, it is but in vain to hope for help from God. 
David found God to be both, and for both, he extols him. Out of suffering rise songs of praise. Would David have even been brought to this point of being reminded and to have stated this had he not faced his home being surrounded by these enemies? I don't wish that on anyone, right? Not like, yay, David, glad you faced that, man, or else we wouldn't have had this psalm to encourage us. How much more depth and richness of praise from a person who has suffered much than a person who has suffered little. You guys remember that story with uh, Jesus went to the home of a Pharisee. He was reclining at the table. There was this lady who came in and she was crying over Jesus' feet. She was washing his feet with her hair. Pharisee looked over and like, does Jesus know what kind of lady this is? Like she's a sinner, everybody knows it. What is he doing? Jesus knew what he was thinking, and he calls him out, and he's like, hey, Simon, I got something to tell you. <laughs> um, he said a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love me more, or love, sorry, love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you judge rightly. Then turning to the woman, and he's still talking to Simon, he said, hey, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, yet she's washing my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss, and yet she hasn't stopped kissing me from the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, he's not saying, like, this woman is forgiven because she showed me so much love. He's like, the reason she's here is because she's been given, forgiven so much. And it has moved her to love so much. Right? So, again, how much more depth and richness of praise from a person who has suffered much than a person who has suffered little? Spurgeon says that the music of the sanctuary is indebted to the suffering of the saints. The music of the sanctuary is indebted to the suffering of the saints. Some of the greatest praise comes out of the greatest trials. You guys remember that song, It Is Well? Most of you have probably heard that song and heard the background to that song, but It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford. This guy had already lost, him and his wife had lost a son to sickness. But then he receives a telegram from his wife. She's like, I alone am left. You, you just lost your four daughters at sea. And that song, it as well, rose from this trial in this man's life. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. <clears throat> I 
I'm not going to read this now, but you guys can go home and check it out. Here's a homework project for you. You can go look at Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel 22. Uh, this is, uh, it says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So if you want to see like kind of a wrap up to that, Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22. So again, God's calling on David did not exempt him from suffering. God's judgment may not be immediate, but it is imminent. God's judgment is for his name and for his renown. Out of suffering rise songs of praise. So what might that look like for you and me? Let us not be surprised when we suffer though we belong to God. Man, that's tough, right? Let us not be surprised when we suffer, though we belong to God. I mean, that's the last thing I want to do. I'm the kind of guy, like, I don't want conflict. Get me out of suffering as quick as you can, right? I don't want to do this. I want a pain-free life. I think most of you would agree, right? 1 Corinthians 16.9, uh, Paul said, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So Paul's like, here comes some ministry. Then he says, and there are many adversaries. What? <laughs> it's like ministry and adversaries at the same time. Yeah. Welcome to life. 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there's a question. Can God still be God if David has enemies? rhetorical by the way can God still be God if God has enemies because God has enemies you can read Romans 5 because we were all his enemies by the way can God still be God and this is the wrestle for us can God still be God and we have enemies rhetorical question While we demand quick justice or an escape from hardship, we can know that God's judgment is both right and is timely. Oftentimes, the plot of the wicked is only concerned about the present time it is in, and even we get caught up in the moment. But the Lord sees the beginning from the end. He sees the outcome of his justice while we may only see the present gruesome circumstance that we're in. This is from 2 Thessalonians. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are, who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
The sufferings that we face in any deliverance that God gives can point others to know him. How do you walk that out anyway? Justin read some stuff last week out of Psalm 58, right? About knocking out the teeth of my enemies. He talked about like how we pray that. It's like, oh God, consume them. Take them out. Man, there's some stuff to see and I don't want to make light of anyone's trial, by the way. I think it's safe to say, and we can all agree, like, I am not walking in your shoes, and at the same time, you're not walking in mine, right? I don't want to make light of anybody's trial or struggle, because there's some horrific stuff, and we've heard each other's stories of what we walked through, and it's not pretty, and I wish it didn't have to happen. So there's some bad things, like I was, well, yeah, I was watching a story, uh, an article, a video last night of a lady, and her, a lady and her three kids walking, and it was like a four or five, seven-year-old, something like that. They're going back to their car. This guy hops out of their car that they left there. He was going to hijack it, but he decides he wants to try to abduct the youngest kid and, like, throws him in the car. Fortunately, like, the lady was able to pull and grab him out of there. I don't know. I, I was just saying that off the bat because, like, man, there are things that stink. And again, I can't even imagine being in David's shoes, right? Because like this is a real story. Not something we've made up and we're just looking at for like encouragement or, you know, like it's a real life story with David. Your house is surrounded by people who want to kill you. So I don't want to make light of any of that, but like how do we walk that out? What does it look like practically? I will read this from Romans 12. Um, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lastly, the sufferings that we can endure both anchor us in who God is, and it stirs in us songs we might not ever sing otherwise. You may not have ever had a song to sing or something to pray or have thought of God in a particular way that he deserves to be thought of until this trial was brought in your life. And you're like, man, God, I never knew that about you. But now I need you to be what you said you are. A couple of questions for you to think on. What hardships are you facing? What ways are you being attacked? How, how many of you guys, raise a hand here, how many of you guys are currently facing a trial or have ever faced a trial in your life? Right? If you're not raising your hand, I want to talk to you afterwards, being like you can come up next week and be like, hey man, I've never suffered in my life before. It's been awesome. <laughs> Because by the way, like if you've never suffered, you will. I just read some truth to that, right? So what are you facing? How are you being attacked? 
Has suffering caused you to question God's presence? Has it caused you to question his goodness? Has it caused you to question God's calling in your life? Has it questioned or caused you to question his ownership of you? Hey, wait a minute, God. Like, if you really, if I belong to you, then like, I won't face suffering, right? Does that make any sense? You're God. When your adversary is pursuing you, your hardship is overtaking you, your struggle is so overbearing, do you confess it to God? Is it possible to see from God's perspective? The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. He, he who sits in heaven laughs in just a little, little while, a little while, a little while, the wicked will be no more. Are you able to see past your personal struggle Seeking the Lord regarding the struggles of others. That's a tough one, man. You ever get so caught up in your own trial, man, in your own struggle? It is weighty. You're like, I, I can't even see past this. Are you able to pray what David said? He's like, man, you're not just my God, but you are the Lord God of hosts. Are we able to see past our own personal struggle to see someone else's deliverance? Is it your desire that Jesus would be made known through your suffering and your deliverance? That God would be seen as God alone and there is no other? Is that our desire? Because I, I got to be honest with you, man. Again, like when I, when I face something and it hurts, it's painful, I want to get out of it. Like that's the only thing I want to do is get out of it. But when does it cross my mind? It's like, well, God, can you be made known through the situation? Like, is there any way that we can go through this and on the other side, your renown would be made known? Someone would know you deeper through my own personal struggle. And I might know you more. I'm going to leave you with this. For real. This is the last thing. Right? Jesus is the best picture of suffering to song. Jesus, God in the flesh, the sinless Savior of the world, with no guilt nor deceit, suffered. Though Jesus has died and rose again, he still has enemies and is well aware of their fate to come. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What Jesus did in his suffering brought deliverance to us, bringing those who were far off near to God by his blood. What Jesus did in his suffering, offering us eternal life by belief in him, blesses all the fam families of the earth in getting to know the only true God. We have this scene recorded for us in the book of Revelation that I love. And he went, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls uh, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and then John who wrote Revelation says I looked and I heard around the throne and the living 
creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads, myriads, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and mighty and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth, suffer, and we get this song. This eternal song that we'll be singing forever, guys. Love you guys. <laughs> 